This is your favorite artist's favorite artist, where we explore the influences of well-known creatives. Some of Virgil Abloh's past and current roles include fashion designer, artist, DJ, founder of Off-White Fashion House, artistic director of Louis Vuitton, creative director at Kanye West Creative Agency. He was also nominated for a Grammy for the art direction of Jay-Z and Kanye West's Watch the Throne album. He's kind of been involved in just about everything. Yeah. He somehow finds a way to be involved in everything from furniture design, architecture, conceptual art, packaging for his friends, companies. He has even done a lot of like merch for Kanye even recently after not necessarily being involved in Yeezy so much. Pretty much Man does, of many trades. Yeah, he, he does just about everything he, you can think of. Let's start a discussion at the beginning when he graduated with a degree in civil engineering at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2012. And then in 2006, he graduated from the Illinois Institute of Technology with a master's in... Architecture. Yeah. So even though he's gone many different directions since graduating, he said this, I do everything with an architectural way of thinking, using my career in design to focus on a brand. Architectural thinking. Yeah, that's interesting because a lot of people would see architecture as being perhaps less thoughtful or less complicated theoretically or conceptually than something like even clothing or artwork. But what he does is he's he doesn't often come up with his own brand new ideas. What he does is he recontextualizes concepts that fit in one creative pursuit and then brings them to a different creative pursuit, which he does very well with, for example, taking concepts of architecture and bringing them into clothing. So this brings us to one of Abloh's first influences, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe. So Abloh studied buildings designed by Mies in college. And this is what Abloh said. It inspired my way of thinking. Mies was born in Germany, 1886, and worked in his father's stone carving shop. He was the last director at a school in modern architecture because when the Nazis rose to power, the school was closed with the intense opposition to modernism. Mies moved to the U.S. and later was the head of the architectural school at the Illinois Institute of Technology, which is where... Virgil Abloh graduated from. Oh, wow. So Mize designed two buildings for the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. He did the Barcelona Pavilion, a museum in Berlin, and the Farnsworth House, which we were looking at pictures of that. Mm -hmm. It was made for a woman, well, who wanted to spend her weekends outside of Chicago. Mm -hmm. It really made a wave in the world of modern architecture, and it's now a public museum. Why do you think Abloh is inspired by Mize? Well, what's interesting is location-wise, you know, works really well. You know, Kanye and Virgil both were from kind of the Chicago area. And so that's something interesting that that this probably, I don't know certainly, but I think he's probably a, a German modernist, mm-hmm. you know, a Bauhaus architect, somehow ended up doing a project pretty close to home for Virgil. I would guess that this Vandero guy is 
um, an inspiration to a lot of architects working nowadays. So that's not so much a surprise, especially considering that he was initially going into architecture. The influences that I see in his work is the modern skin and bones idea of architecture. Mm -hmm. The transparency, the everything that you see is all there is to the building. Yeah. It's very stripped down. It's like the like the Farnsworth house. It's a glass house. That's r- right. <laughs> it's very literally transparent. Yeah, there's a transparency where you you see all the aspects of the building. You see the the steel. You see the glass. And a lot of people say, "Oh, that's soul crushing. It's so uh, boring or cold and cold." Yeah, that you know that there may be an argument to make about that. I think. You know, Van der Rohe makes interesting versions of that. Mm-hmm. But as a concept, it can be very cold. Um, what I would say about it, though, is that Virgil's, like, shoes, for example, you notice he basically, he turns them inside out. He uses sometimes even transparent materials. He makes sure you can see the stitching, and he'll make it bigger and make less of it. So what he's really doing is he's turning something like a, sh- a Nike shoe into a skin and bones piece of architecture. So I think a lot of it goes back to the Bauhaus movement. So maybe I can give a little bit of background on that for a second. Yeah, before. please. Okay. So it began in 1919 with Walter Gropius. He founded a school and this is their guiding principle, quote, Design is neither an intellectual nor a material affair, but simply an integral part of the stuff of life, necessary for everyone in a civilized society. It's a movement that focused on utilitarian objects, sleek designs, and bringing together all mediums. Yeah, one thing that I think was was most interesting about that time period is that they didn't separate art, design, Mm -hmm. buildings, children's toys clothing they all are part of the same movement which is if you make everything out of an accessible material and you simplify it and remove all the nonsense what you do is you create this utopian society where everything is high art everything is brought up and everything is utilitarian now obviously they didn't succeed at their high art um, utopian claims But it's still a really interesting idea. Yeah. And the founder of that movement, he also said, Together let us desire, conceive, and create the new structure of the future, which will embrace architecture and sculpture and painting in one unity, and which will one day rise toward heaven from the hands of a million workers like the crystal symbol of a new faith. Yeah, so very much optimistic. (laughs) But bringing together different mediums in in the creation and display of one object yeah as far as that and and the minimalist aesthetic that they um that people really connected with those are things that have definitely thrived and continued on after this movement has kind of i don't want to i guess you could say come and go yeah the architect mize was a part of this movement and we can see that it influenced Ablo because it combines the practical with tasteful and minimal with style and focuses on bringing together different mediums. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. That's definitely true of the Bauhaus. Another person who did this is another of Ablo's influences, Rem Koolhaas. So he was born in the Netherlands in 1944. Then he moved to Indonesia when he was eight, then moved to Amsterdam. In 1968, he graduated from the Architectural Association School of Architecture in London. Then he went to Cornell University and the Institute of Architecture and Urban Studies in New York City. He opened his architecture firm in London. It's called OMA, O-M-A. He was a professor in practice of architecture and urban design at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard University. So out of the many buildings he's designed, the only one you and I have seen is the Seattle Library, which he did in 2004 when he was getting his master's in architecture, when yeah. Ablo was getting his master's in architecture. Yeah, it's a really beautiful building. It would be such a fun job just to create all these public spaces for people mm-hmm. and um Kuhas oftentimes thinks very forward, future forward. He thinks like, okay, what does society need? Like a lot of architects in the past have tried to think about like, what is it about man? What makes us, you know, what do we need in our spaces? But I think Kuhas specifically isn't just asking about humans in general. He's asking what does this generation need that our last generation no longer uh, that we don't need from the last generation of, of buildings. Kulhas said, the city is an addictive machine from which there is no escape. And he defined the city as a collection of red hot spots. He realizes that big cities are frantic places with a lot of commotion. And I think his architecture, kind of more modern, um, it's simple but yet very unique. And it creates kind of a refuge from the city where it's not adding to the the franticness of the city yeah yeah he, he he very much considers how the space will actually be used i guess you could say that about just about any good architect but sometimes i don't think they think about it so so much about like what this generation is really doing with their time like he recognizes you know what cities are what they will become if i'm not mistaken Kuhas, he was the guy who is, I think he's advising like Tesla and a lot of other giant companies in like the desert of Nevada. He's coming up with these ideas of how to build like a city-sized building with no people in it because it's all going to be run with by like automated, uh, essentially robots and machines in the future. And so they're already planning out, you know, how do you create something like that that doesn't look like this dystopian nightmare you know how can you make something like that beautiful but also how do you create architecture for robots instead of people yeah i found an interview by um uh, system magazine where Kulhas at age 73 and ablo at age 37 sat down together for a chat and they just had some really cool conversations so i want to read just a couple lines from that interview Virgil said, I think the internet has created a sort of utopia. I look at it as potential. Do you feel that this is a renaissance period or the worst Armageddon? Hmm. And Rem replied, I'm not sure I can judge this. I never try to define it. It has elements of both, but I don't think it's a bad period, do you? Maybe it just becomes more boring. Cities will become more boring. It will be offices and work. Cities will have no real use. There is no business anymore. And Virgil replied, I went to a store this morning and there was no one in there, literally no one. 
Imagine if all the vacant spaces invited contemporary architecture and it was like, hey, let's go meet at this pavilion, an area with internet and basic things, just a space that people go to. Space has always had value, but now it means something different. At this moment, once you take things that have traditionally lived in four sacred walls, the art world, the fashion world, this holy layer for purists, and you intersect it with tourists, with people who are authentic to themselves, then you could get change. So he continues on, but I want to ask you what you think of that. Yeah, I love Virgil's use of the word the purist and the tourist. He uses that all the time. He actually, in his new exhibition that he has, Figures of Speech, Mm -hmm. I think. I think it's moving to Atlanta. Um, It was in uh, the Chicago Museum of Art or whatever. Um, He has on, I think, the elevators. I saw just a couple pictures. I'm not certain. But it looks like on the elevators, one of them says purist and one of them says tourist. Oh, really? Yeah, and his idea is kind of like tourists, I think, is kind of what we all think about tourists. We're always annoyed with tourists. Even if we are the tourists, we're annoyed with the other tourists. Mm -hmm. Um, And the purist is people who are obviously educated in the subject, but not necessarily creating an environment where others can gain access to the same level of concept or aesthetic. Hmm. So the purist keeps the art in the art museum by doing so it makes it both elitist but also it it allows um a space for people who actually care about it and are willing to think deeply about it Mm -hmm. and you have to be able to if you're going to give access to that kind of stuff to the the tourist you have to make sure that you leave something for the purist otherwise you know you'll feel like you've you've spoiled it all so i think Virgil thinks that streetwear is the next art movement. I think he's actually written that down. He's been like, you know, there's modernists, expressionists, blah, 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 streetwear. (laughs) (laughs) It's its own category. Yeah. You know, Um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's my interpretation of what he means. But I think that that's an interesting idea that like our, you know, society land you know, it has no value anymore. Those spaces, those city spaces, what will they turn into? That's such an interesting question. And I think that's, uh, even though Virgil's moved on from architecture at this point, I'm sure at some point in his career, he's going he's gonna to design some, some giant Crazy. building somewhere. Yeah. But right now he's working with people like Ikea, rethinking the millennial rethinking the maybe not even the millennial anymore what do you call well that's the younger generation yeah but he's used the word millennial that's been his like main focus okay well like millennial Mm -hmm. then like how do millennials live now how do they live differently they live in smaller spaces they have less things you know they think differently about their objects ikea is really where he's most influenced by architects so that's why i brought it up because like rem kuhas builds spaces thinking about the future and to try and reimagine how we will use our spaces from generation to generation. And that's what Virgil does with Ikea. Absolutely. And his own personal line of furniture. Yeah. That's what he does too. So, and then another part of the, of the interview, Rem says, do you know the expression existence minimum? Virgil replies, no. Then Rem says, It's the very minimum people need to exist. People find it very frightening because they are addicted to luxury. 
but I find it very sympathetic. It shows that there is no waste and that you are really focusing on the essential. He continues, and this whole dialogue contains other really interesting things. So I recommend to people who are interested to, to look it up. I think the concept of existence minimum shows in Cool House's style. It shows in Ablo's style too. Yeah, that's this interesting thing is like when you're part of like the Bauhaus movement or modernism or whatever, it's always kind of stripping something bare. And Virgil doesn't always do that. It's just in comparison to other people, he certainly does that. Um, I guess I don't quite understand the meaning of existence minimum. What do you think that means? It is basically like the concept of minimalism, where this is what I need to survive. And it can seem really frightening to people because we're so used to living frivolously, having um, excess stuff. Mm. But what Coolhouse does in his architecture style and what ablo does is bring everything back to the essentials hmm i guess that's true for me i think like kanye with yeezy does that better or even you know there's plenty of brands i could name but just i mentioned kanye because he's worked with virgil kanye makes minimalist clothing that i feel like it's kind of like the futurist Carhartt, Patagonia, like it's what, like you imagine, like people who are riding around in like hovercrafts, they, they <laughs> you know, if they're like wearing like their, their day to day, you know, version of, of what workwear is now. That's kind of like what I see Kanye's clothing as being. It's something that, that can last. It's something that you can wear every day. A lot of Virgil stuff seems very, um, novelty. It doesn't seem like stuff you can necessarily wear every day. But like I was saying before, that's just maybe with his clothing. You know, some people might say he's a much more interesting artist or uh, industrial designer than he is a clothing designer. Because in those areas, I think he definitely thinks more of the philosophy of singularity, you know, owning owning less and less. But with clothing, he seems to just knock out tons of like random conceptual novelty items. Yeah, well, we can we can continue talking about his his career in fashion. Since we're already mentioning it. So in 2012, he launched the brand Pyrex Vision. So it began with him purchasing Deadstock Ralph Lauren flannel shirts for $40 each. And then on them, he would screen print the word Pyrex and the number 23 referencing Michael Jordan, who was his childhood hero. And they sell for like $550 each. So one of his goals was to turn these ready-made shirts into pieces of art. And I think that's still one of his heavy fashion, art, and design trademarks is this ready-made object. So he's also been making furniture lately, and he said, At my Shanghai store, I designed furniture too. I was interested in the external structure being the main structure and the hollowed-out feeling. Which, Joe, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about, about, you know, literally like transparency. Mm-hmm. I don't know which piece you're talking about, though. What is that reference? That reference a specific work, work of... Uh, I it's guess just talking specific about specific his chair. furniture. So then he goes on, It's the very first furniture I've produced that is on sale in collectible design spheres. Whether it is taking something from a Marcel Duchamp principle and adding value to an inanimate object or something else... It's about making new work with a reference to the past. Yeah, um, Virgil's often said, like, do we really need another chair? And so that that's a lot of people's criticism of Virgil. 
is that he never really innovates. He only recontextualizes. Instead of making a brand new chair, what he'll do is he'll take a chair by a specific, you know, well-known chair designer, and he'll just make it a certain color or write a word on it or add a little doorstop on on one of the legs, which is what he's done for his latest IKEA collection. Um, so some people would say, yo, you're not even coming up with anything new at all. This is ridiculous. You're just taking famous people's work to show that you have good taste, and then you're just putting your name on it to say, look, I have such good taste because my name is on this, so I'm recontextualizing some other artist's work. But what he says is, well, there's no point in me coming up with a brand new chair when we haven't fully explored this idea or this per this design is great, so we might as well make it art. We might as well add something to it that makes it art by making it conceptual. So taking a regular industrial object and saying this is great design, that's one thing. But to make it art, that's free. All you have to do is put an idea on it. And so that's what Virgil does by adding words or symbols or whatever it is. He says, you know, I'm going to Duchamp this design object by also making it a conceptual art. He once said that Duchamp is his lawyer. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Duchamp is my lawyer. So what he says is like, yo, you got a problem with what I did. Take it up with Duchamp. <laughs> Do you have a problem with what he did? No, I think it's great. I mean, I think it's it has its limits, you know, it has its limits, as does a lot of great artwork, you know. It it doesn't fulfill every purpose ever, you know. Like, some, some people expect so much of artwork, some people expect so much of design, and some people say, well, all I really want from design is a well-crafted piece of clothing with a, an original silhouette and using interesting fabrics. And people say, well, uh, not Kanye, Virgil doesn't do any of those things with his work. Well, that's not Virgil's job. Virgil's job is to take a Ralph Lauren shirt or Gildan hoodie and just recontextualize those objects with his own idea on top of it. He's, he's writing his Armut. That's Pyrex for him, you know. Armut, that's what Duchamp wrote on the urinal. He wrote Armut. You know, that was his, that was his alter ego. And in some ways, I think that nowadays, the Gildan T is the found object and the brand logo is the Armut signature. Hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, but people might say, so artwork is now, or not even artwork. Yeah, the material object, artwork. Artwork, t-shirts, clothing. It's not about the object itself. The object itself is just merch for the idea. And I think that's kind of what branding is. You create this idea, you create this story for the company, and the objects themselves are what people purchase to be a part of that idea. So some people would say, oh great, so you're saying conceptual art is no different from branding? Well, maybe in the hands of Virgil Abloh it's not. So later he also started screen printing images of the work of Caravaggio, like Annunciation from 1608 and The Deposition. So obviously, Caravaggio is another one of Abloh's favorite artists. So I have a question for you, Joe, but first I want to say a couple things about Caravaggio. Yeah. He was a Baroque painter born in Italy in 1571. He became an orphan when he was 11 years old and then later apprenticed with a painter in Milan. And that's kind of how his art career started. So my first question to you is... 
Do you like Caravaggio's work? I love it. I think it's really interesting. You do? You don't like it? Well... Okay, it's not... Obviously, like, I don't... I don't, uh... I don't think about it that much. It hasn't, like... It hasn't had the same, uh, powerful effect on me, this influence on me. But, like, I think it's kind of interesting. I think it's kind of crazy. Like, the fact that he paints these pictures of Jesus and the, the apostles and stuff, and they're all wearing, like, contemporary clothes and like the lighting is like insane and crazy yeah i do think that's one strength he has is making really interesting lighting and working with the shadows Mm -hmm. and contrasting light and darkness in his work but it it all seems kind of darker heavier yeah like there's a lot of like heads being chopped off and stuff it's like for someone i mean it's not francis bacon no it's not it's not francis bacon but i mean some might say he's just as uh a scary individual as Francis Bacon. I mean, this guy, Caravaggio, he actually has like an ex- a serious criminal record. Yeah. Uh, Caravaggio murdered some people and oftentimes he was, he used prostitutes as models for people like the Virgin mm-hmm. Mary, which is like so ironic. Yeah. You know, so this murdering, gambling drunkard who uses prostitutes, has sex with them, and then uses them as models for uh, people in the Bible. It's a really interesting <laughs> character. Yeah. Uh, so, so that brings me to my second question. What's that? Why do you think Ablo chose to screen print that artist's work rather than the work of any other artist? Yeah, what makes him so different? What makes Caravaggio so special? I, it has to be just personal. I'll bet you anything uh, Ablo just like saw it one time and he mm. was like, whoa, art, man. <laughs> okay, so I have a quote that actually you're kind of you're kind of <laughs> right there. This is what happened. So he took his first art history class in his last year of college and he learned about the Renaissance and Caravaggio. And this is what Ablo said, quote, it flipped my head backward. I'd spent so much time thinking practical things. So, Joe, I guess he hadn't done much creative mm-hmm. work up until that point. And he said, quote, I felt that a random black kid from the suburbs of Chicago shouldn't be doing that. End quote. Shouldn't be what? Shouldn't be... Being, be more creative. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, he, I think that's so interesting that Caravaggio was, like, so inspiring to him. He's like, whoa, this, like, needlessly giant, eccentric painting of, you know this beheading in the bible or whatever it is that's pretty cool i mean like that's the thing though is it's just so personal it's kind of like his story so it's funny that like he just was like caravaggio i like it it's pretty cool i'm putting it on a t-shirt because i'm now caravaggio i'm i'm the missionary for (laughs) for caravaggio i'm his evangelist i'm gonna go out and tell people about how dope caravaggio Mm -hmm. is i think that's pretty much all it is from what i gathered i mean i'm sure there's like more of like a concept in his mind i mean he's made some cool sweatshirts like look at that one it's light blue yeah he's he's made like all kinds of caravaggio stuff it's i think it's really interesting um yeah i like i like caravaggio's work more on on a sweatshirt that Abbo's wearing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then a painting in a museum. But now it's pretty novel. Like you go to like Urban Outfitters and they have like... Tons of Van Gogh. Yeah, like and- Van Gogh sweatshirts and stuff. But at the time when this was made, I mean, I don't know how long ago it was, but it wasn't exactly a trend, you yeah. know? Like mm-hmm. it's... Like now art is like 
very it's always been part of fashion and it's been fashionable or whatever Mm -hmm. but like to the general public art has become more and more fashionable so it's not like caravaggio has like you know you you can have like a like a guns and roses t-shirt right but like yo look at this guns and roses t-shirt this merch that i got you Mm -hmm. don't exactly have like a like a Caravaggio merch that you got at the Caravaggio <laughs> concert, you know? Right. And so, like, it's kind of like a cool idea because that's kind of how I see, like, Virgil's hoodies that he does. It's kind mm-hmm. of like, yo, this is my Caravaggio merch that I got <laughs> when I became obsessed with Caravaggio or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Ablo collaborated with Caravaggio. Uh, he collaborated with him? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> An <laughs> unauthorized collaboration with uh, yeah. Caravaggio. You could say that. And... He also worked with Jim Joe. So when did you first hear about Jim Joe? Jim Joe. I don't know. It's kind of like I've always seen his scribblings and I never knew like who did them at first or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like he writes like silly poetry mm-hmm. in like his, he has like almost like a very specific font, but it looks very kind of like crappy. It's like not necessarily childlike. Like childlike, but I like it. I love his style of like writing, but it's like very childlike and like usually the poems don't seem to make any any sense at all. They remind me kind of of the same stuff that uh Basquiat, Jean Michaud Basquiat did in like like the 70s or 80s or whatever when he was starting out, just like writing random like words or phrases on the street, but it feels kind of like I don't know. It feels a bit like hard for people to understand, which somehow makes it seem like kind of like cooler. Like I get it, dude. You know. So let, let me explain who Jim Joe is yeah. for people who don't know. So he's from Montreal. He began tagging in New York City in 2012, and then he was commissioned by Kanye for Jesus's iTunes page, and then of course uh, with Pyrex Vision. So he tags his name in a childlike font. He writes fake ads. I love his Twitter. I don't even have a Twitter, but I was reading his Twitter. <laughs> I love it. And it's full of statements where he writes in all capital letters and just posts things like guilty of innocence, reflections are free, paper before money, rats stay free, explanations mean nothing, the hospital is a beautiful place to leave, and, and more things like that. Yeah, yeah. I think when Virgil had like the Pyrex, when he introduced Pyrex, he made this video called The Youth Always Win. I think that's what the video is called. They're wearing like yellow sweatshirts. Yeah, and they're all like just like standing there. Mm -hmm. And then there's some dude in the background who writes on the wall. He writes like this like confusing esoteric poem in spray paint on the wall behind them. And there's like layers. He writes over and over it. I think that's Jim Joe. It looks like his handwriting. Jim Joe's also done things with Drake. So like Drake has this album called If You're Reading This, It's Too Late. It's actually just like a poem from Jim Joe that's just like written in Jim Joe's hand style. And it's Drake's, that's all it is. That's the cover of Drake's album. That's cool. So yeah. he's he's definitely remained kind of mysterious. Yeah. You can't really find too much about him. No, but somehow he's in with all the successful people. They have tea together. (laughs) They have tea? Yeah. So after Pyrex, Ablo next founded the brand Off-White. And it was shown at the Paris Fashion Week in 2014. So it's based in Milan, where Ablo also shows his gray area furniture collection. 
And in 2016, he opened up a store in Tokyo. So at this point, you know, he's moved on from flannels and his designing clothes being shown in Europe. So who kind of inspires this passion? There's a number of people that I think we want to talk about. Yeah, like designers who inspire mm-hmm. off-white. One of them is Phoebe Philo. Uh, she was born in France in 1973 and is a British fashion designer. She was the creative director of Chloe from 2001 to 2006 and then Celine from 2008 to 2018. Ablo also thinks a lot about Bella Hadid, who is a 22-year-old model raised in L.A. She has like a quarter of a billion followers on Instagram, was voted model of the year in 2016. Here's what Ablo says about her. Part of what makes a great show is how Bella feels when she walks on the runway, he explained. She has an uncanny, powerful presence. And what I think is important is not her looks, it's her personality, her brain, that makes her unique and compelling. So how can I capture that? Make her a part of the process. That's how I had to find my magic trick. The brand is just as much hers as it is mine, or as much as my interns or my assistants as it is mine. It's an empowered brand. My job is not to control and grasp it, which is like trying to grab a feather. My job is to sort of be a spirit leader. Wow, yeah. I mean, that's interesting. He definitely, like, tries to give it back to the kids. You know, like, it's so interesting. I've never heard a designer say, yeah, this model that we use, yeah, this brand is as much hers as it is mine, you know? That's so cool. Yeah, it is cool. It's an interesting idea. Um, I wonder how it plays out. Well, I think it, first of all, just creates an environment of a lot of respect. Mm Mm-hmm. I forget the designer's name who's in charge of the brand Omandi. It's like another contemporary brand by this uh, uh, woman. I forget her name. But she's always like talking trash on Virgil because she cares about the quality of of clothing, which, you know, (laughs) some people say isn't necessarily there in brands like Off-White. Yeah, she says that like, who is Virgil's girl? Like the girl who wears off white. Who is this? Who is the clientele? Who who is his customer? And she's like, there is no girl who fits off white like the brand. But I think maybe he's thinking like, yo, I want to make something for for Bella to wear. But a lot of people, obviously, a lot of the rich teens spend tons of money on teenage boys. Spend tons of money on off white. Mm-hmm. Before off white, even. You know, he was working with Kanye. And maybe we'll talk more about kind of his collaborators. But I think this is kind of important because this is kind of where he gets his start. So many people branched off of the Kanye tree. Like Kanye is like the grandfather. And everyone who's working now pretty much was under Kanye at some point. Like, We're going to do a whole podcast series about Yeah, Kanye. we'll do one all about Kanye. But some people I just want to mention real quick that mm-hmm. like worked for Kanye not like necessarily that were Kanye's influences but you know they all kind of were I guess Virgil was Kanye's creative director of Yeezy and kind of like the right hand man for design for a while and then there's this other guy named Heron Preston who has a brand called Heron Preston (laughs) he was kind of the art director for Kanye West during the early years of Yeezy Um, some other people to mention is one of my favorites, Tremaine Emery. He's a collaborator with a guy named A-Side in a brand called No Vacancy Inn. They also worked together with people like Playboy Cardi, uh, Bloody Osiris, K-1000, 
Callie Thornhill DeWitt. Some people know him as like Caramel Bobby. That's just his Instagram name. But he did kind of like the pop Life of Pablo merch. And Callie Thornhill DeWitt did like a bunch of stuff with Virgil for like his opening of the art museum. Jerry Lorenzo is the guy who is the designer for and the owner of the company. Jerry Lorenzo, um, the guy who does Fear of God, which is great. Kanye is kind of turning more and more into Jerry Lorenzo. When at first I thought Jerry Lorenzo was basically just like this guy who is making clothing that's like a mixture of Yeezy and Rick Owens. But like now Kanye is obsessed with God to the same level that Jerry Lorenzo is. Uh, Matthew Williams, the designer for Aleeks. All these people were under Kanye, and Virgil was under Kanye when they all started having their come-ups, basically, where they all had their opportunities to to branch out from the Kanye tree. Okay, so who do you want to talk about next? Let's talk about Kim Jones. Okay, let's. So he was born in London in 1979. He studied graphics and photography at the Camberwell School of Art and then studied menswear fashion at Central St. Martins. In 2008, he was the creative director of Alfred Dunhill. In 2009, he won Menswear Designer of the Year at the British Fashion Awards. In 2011, he became the style director of Louis Vuitton. And then in 2018, last year, he became the creative director of Dior. Well, clearly he's an influence to Virgil because they're both the most recent creative directors of menswear. What do you like about Kim Jones's style? What do I like about it? Well, I think he does really well at Dior. Actually, I think he does really well most places where he's at. It's, his clothes are not, perhaps, you know, critics might say they're not challenging enough or they're not cutting edge enough. But they're very wearable, they're very fresh, they're very beautiful. Something that he did that really changed the game was the collaboration with Supreme. So Vuitton and Supreme did a collab, and it was all just Supreme monogram, Louis Vuitton monogram. Here's a picture, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. So like they did all these Supreme bags with like the box logo type uh, color and typography. And they did like the, the the Louis Vuitton monograms all over everything. It's what they all wanted and never thought would be possible. And then Kim Jones just did it. And a lot of people say it was kind of like that was the moment. That was like the, the big bang that opened up all the, the pathways between high fashion and streetwear. So I was doing some research and... Apparently, he's pretty heavily influenced by the places he's lived, growing up as the son of a hydrogeologist. Throughout his childhood, he traveled many places in South America and Africa, which he considers his second home. So he was in Botswana when he fell in love with an article of clothing for like the first time. It was a t-shirt with a picture of a lion on it. And then as a teenager, he loved to read his sister's fashion magazines. And so he started collecting vintage Levi's. What do you remember as the first article of clothing that you loved as a kid? Uh, as a skater, it's probably shoes. 
that's kind of what the skater thing is growing up. Those DC shoes? Well, I had actually like a pair of DVS, <laughs> which were maybe more lame. But there's like this big... So do you remember having this pair of shoes and like falling in love with it being like, this is my favorite it was like the most. It was like the more important thing. Like whatever, if you're wearing like a crappy t-shirt and like terrible jeans, it's fine as long as you're rocking like the right pair of shoes. That was kind of like the thing when I was in high school. Like I remember in second grade, I had these reversible pants that you could also roll up and button as capris, <laughs> and they were green on one side, and then they, on the other side, they have like a big leaf pattern i think they're from land's end or ll bean or something but that's like the first article of clothing that i remember just loving and wanting to wear every day yeah it's funny that kim jones uses that example because it seems like probably a pretty um silly example for someone to use who's like the creative director of louis vuitton and dior but what's interesting is he's kind of known for you know more streetwear style Mm -hmm. jones once said i get so bored of the term streetwear you wear clothes in the street so everything is streetwear you can wear a couture gown down the street and that turns into streetwear totally i think that's so true streetwear maybe was initially thought of as like i don't know accessible clothing or something or like something that references hip-hop i don't know what streetwear means some people might just say streetwear means clothing that cool black people wear you know what i mean so like it's something it's just like a ridiculous kind of term and who knows But it's funny it's like you're an artist and you're like what is art everything is art you know and like yeah he's having that same absolutely no one likes to have whatever they're doing classified in any way (laughs) you know even the artists who were like you know expressionists minimalists conceptual artists all these people, they never actually wanted to have a name strapped onto whatever whatever they were doing. So I get it. People wear such crazy things nowadays that who knows what like will actually be cool for kids to wear in the street in the future. Maybe it'll be like pinstripe suits or something like that, mm-hmm. you know? Because I feel like it used to be you could wear, like it was very certain things that were in style. Mm-hmm. And to be cool, that's what you had to wear. But nowadays, and I feel like within the last few years, it's shifted so that you can wear pretty much anything Mm -hmm. and be considered stylish or cool. Yeah, I was watching a movie with like Malcolm X where he's like wearing like this, uh, what they call like zoot suits. It's like these baggy, bright colored, like fancy suits and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And like that's what like young black kids were wearing in the street at one point you know i think people have kind of lost their minds as far as what can be trendy nowadays Mm -hmm. so after all we've discussed what is ablo up to now and who are his influences for his current endeavors good question a lot of people say he plagiarizes from a lot of younger designers I won't get into that too much because I don't know enough about it. Mm-hmm. But just look up Diet Prada. I don't know if you've ever heard of Diet Prada. No. So it's this Instagram account where Diet Prada, it's basically saying like, you know, like off brand of something else or like the not so good version. And so what they do is they put like designers on blast for copying other people. Hmm. And it's crazy. Like they go hard and they're so mean and like, like what vicious. Do they say? Like, everything, they just 
tear people apart there and they like say it in like a really like snarky sassy way when they're just like oh you think you can get away with like copying this this or this you know but i think virgil i think virgil i'm not going to give him a pass on that stuff but i think it's worth keeping in mind that plagiarism is just the way contemporary artwork is done for example he's a dj he doesn't write music generally you know he mixes music he creates the party. That's his job. His job is not to come up with everything. His job is to make the party. In June, the Museum of Contemporary Art opened Ablo's exhibit titled Figures of Speech. The exhibit was designed by Oma, the firm of Rem Koolhaas, the, the architect. The exhibit was curated by the museum's chief curator, Michael Darling. So it showcases some of his collaborations he's done with Koolhaas, Ikea, and Kanye. I mentioned some of the people who were experimenting with Virgil when they were on the come up, like Tremaine Emery and Callie Thornhill DeWitt. And the new exhibit that they're doing in Atlanta has several collaborative conceptual art pieces by both of them. Hmm. There's also some photographs taken by Jurgen Teller. One of his Ikea pieces is a rug with big white letters that say in quotations, keep off. And this is kind of, I think, an iconic Ablo signature. I found out he even asked people to put words like streetwear and merchwear in quotation marks when they are appearing as quotes in printed interviews. Hmm. Yeah, he likes to use quotation marks. Because it kind of gives it like a ironic feeling. I feel like it's getting very tired by this point. But I think he's doubling down on it. I think he just knows this is his legacy. And he might just be doing that for the rest of his life. Who knows? Why do you think he does that? Uh, why does do you think it's like to be kind of ironic? Yeah. Why do you think he does it? He's not trying to be serious. I think by putting quotation marks around the words keep off. It makes it more of a joke. conceptual, more of a joke. As opposed to without the quotation mark. Yeah, where it's like, oh, maybe that's for real. <laughs> In an interview, Ablo said, my career is fashion four times a year and a new series of furniture maybe once every year and a half. Ikea approached me to do a survey of millennials' first apartments, so I'm looking at doing 30 pieces of furniture that could be a toolkit for millennials. So I'm understanding the different clientele, why they purchase furniture, what they want. Part of the study was understanding the Duchamp principles of art and objects. I looked at the IKEA nomenclature, a Kelly bag, and how the price of a Tom Sachs art piece evolves. Looking at Tumblr images is how millennials assemble these images to represent themselves. No one owns anything anymore, but if you have knowledge of a certain chair, then it is a part of your dinner conversation. That is the millennial's train of thought. I'm interested in this new cultural world that we have been handed that processes politics and art in a different and democratic way. It makes me think about how someone like Ablo, who collaborates with many different brands and companies, has to rethink who he's designing for. He has to think about the market of whoever he's collaborating with so he can understand why they're going to look at the, the product and buy it 
and the purpose behind their actions. Yeah, I really like what he mentioned about Tom Sachs. Um, we're Tom Sachs fans. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely going to do a podcast on him because yeah. Tom Sachs, he literally makes lists of like a hundred different people who influence him. So his will be like super easy to come up with the material to write a podcast mm-hmm. on. He's very intentional. Yeah. So we're definitely going to have to do one on him. But what did you like about what Abloh was saying? I like that he was saying that material objects need to be more than what they were before. At one point, just the way an object was made or the way it looks or the way it feels, the materials, that used to be enough. Now that's not enough for for our generation. Our generation is more interested in talking about furniture than owning it because we have less objects, but we have more information. So if you're going to have an object, declare it art. Make it a conversation piece. Don't just create an object because it's good quality. No one cares about that as much anymore. Ablo has also been collaborating with Takashi Murakami, who's a 57-year-old Japanese contemporary and pop artist. To describe his style, I think I'd say colorful, playful, busy. He has some very iconic images that are his brand identity. Yeah, you could almost say cliche images of just Japanese things, Japanese imagery. You know, he uses like anime, but he does have his own iconic symbols like a these strange, you know, circular faces and flowers and things like that. Why do you think Ablo and Murakami work together? Why do they work together? That's a good question. I think sometimes it's just like, why not? Like, they're just, <laughs> they're just like friends. And so it's like, well, let's just make a show together. We're both successful. We're both artists slash designers. We both kind of exist in this hype beast world. So we might as well just make something together because I look at their products and it's literally just two logos on top of each mm-hmm. other. Like the, it's a painting of just the Pyrex symbol and Murakami's flower symbol it's just sitting on top of each other. And they do have a whole show of just that. Mm-hmm. So why does that exist? I don't know exactly. <laughs> it's almost like... Virgil Abloh was thinking, what are all the top artists slash fashion designers? And I should work with all of them. Well, it's worth mentioning that Murakami has collaborated with Louis Vuitton in the past. Mark Jacobs, when he was in charge of Louis Vuitton, he worked with Kanye West to make a pair of shoes, many pairs of shoes. He also worked with Murakami. He did the rainbow multicolored monogram bags and belts and all kinds of things for Louis Vuitton. One could argue that even though I said Kim Jones was the one who brought streetwear and high fashion together, he may have kind of broke down the very last border between the two. But... The person who was pioneering it before him was, of course, Mark Jacobs, who's, you know, was a creative director of Louis Vuitton and working with Murakami. And Murakami, of course, did a bunch of artwork and music videos for Kanye West. So I think it's just like a group of acquaintances who just want to have fun together. 
And Kim Jones does that all the time. He just picks artists who he likes and uses them for projects like Daniel Arsham, Cause, Murakami, all kinds of people. And so that's maybe what Virgil Abloh did. Yeah, I the, what they were talking about, if you read the artist statement for the Gagosian art show that Murakami and Abloh d- did together, they just say, we're trying to like explore this moment in time like what it means what 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 is all this like logos marketing hype what is all this you know and there's an artist who does like comic strips and conceptual art his name's charles lutz i think and he has this one comic strip and it shows this art dealer and an artist standing in front of this giant canvas and it says mediocre oh yeah or yeah and the the Art, caption. Yeah, yeah, the caption. The art dealer is like, ah, this will be a voice of our generation. <laughs> and really, that's kind of how I feel about Virgil's show with Murakami. It's like, yeah, this is totally capturing our moment. Congratulations. <laughs> there is an interview by Vogue. And Murakami and Abloh were both given this prompt. In the various exhibitions, the most portrayed work in multiple ver- versions of colors, materials, and supports is the simple intersection of your most unmistakable symbols. Abloh's four arrows and Murakami's smiling flower. Unmistakable signals, aka they're both of their logos that they put mm-hmm. on top of each other. A sort of icon composed of icons. And this was Murakami's response to that prompt. It's an emblematic gesture. We really wanted to render our languages indivisible. I think that valuable art can only be valued years after its creation, not immediately afterwards. When future audiences look at our work, I'd like to think of the end of an era when art was still sheltered in a sanctuary and when we were working ceaselessly to bring it outside. Hmm. Interesting. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Because, like, he's basically saying, we're, we're, what is he saying? We're giving art to the people. We're taking it out of the sanctuary. Yeah, we're, like, bringing it outside. And and he thinks that I mean, it's his... okay if it's not valued now because his goal is to have work valued way in the future because that's only how it happens. Yeah, I mean, it'll certainly be historically important. Therefore, it will give the artwork value. So that's a tricky thing is art that points to a specific time in history is always worth more than art that doesn't describe a certain point in history. Because it's much easier for art historians to say, this piece is important because it describes World War II, you know? Mm -hmm. But just because an artwork doesn't describe World War II and it happened during World War II doesn't mean it's any less important. It's just less important for history. Therefore, it's removed from the art canon. I agree that Ablo and Murakami work. People will be thinking about it. People will be talking about it. It will be in the history books, just like um, the Basquiat Andy Warhol pieces. But at the time... The Basquiat Andy Warhol pieces were considered to be no good. Just like I'm kind of saying that their show was no good. I think it's interesting he uses the vocabulary. Uh, We really wanted to render our languages indivisible. 
I kind of think, okay, Murakami has more of this art side and Virgil Abloh has more of a architecture, design, furniture, fashion. And so it's like, oh, let's bring these different mediums to people with very different backgrounds Mm -hmm. in their artistic endeavors and bringing them together. It's kind of unique. Yeah, it is unique. It's interesting. Um, It's like when an author and an illustrator who've done very different projects come together. Yeah, it's just fun. It's it's fun for people who know both of them. Just like a Supreme Louis Vuitton uh, jacket or something or a bag. It doesn't necessarily make the bag any good. It makes it interesting because you're like, whoa, mind blown. Two worlds collide. What else? What do you want to talk about? What do you think? Anything about Virgil? You want to talk about how, anything about like how bad he is or good he is? <laughs> no. I don't think so. I don't think I have anything else to say. Okay, well, let's see. Virgil is friends with a lot of people. He's kind of like, for example, in his in some of his shows, he's had people. Wait, wait, wait. Say, say it when you're not breathing out. <laughs> so. <laughs> Whoa. That looks cool on the screen. Virgil's also referenced a lot of other artists, including people like. Arthur Jaffa and David Hammonds, who are two of my favorite. He references a lot of rappers and musicians, including Nirvana. He has done a lot of things with Playboy Cardi, with Bloody Osiris. There's plenty of people. I could go on for days and days about all the artists and creatives that Virgil works with that are less known than he is or play a bigger role than we recognize. But I think we've covered a lot of stuff, so this will be fine. Yeah. Does that work? Yeah. Do you want me to say some sound bits? I'll say some things so you can stick it in whenever you want. Okay. Ha! Sophie, you are so funny. <laughs> you can put that wherever you want. If you say something and I eat it, I didn't give you a big enough laugh. I could do a laugh track for you. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> is that you just add it in whenever you want just say something stupid and then that's it for today folks <laughs> <laughs> that's all folks that's it for today see you next time bye <laughs>